Welcome back to the Cult House Podcast. I'm your host, the scholar of spite and the Saturday Night Delight, Roger Riddell. Joining me today, he's the co-creator of The Boys, Transmetropolitan, Happy, and he has worked on a number of other comic book characters ranging from the New Warriors to Wolverine to the Punisher to Spider-Man and Batman. He is Derek Robertson. How are you doing today, Derek? I'm doing all right, Roger. How are you? Pretty good. I um just to get things off um you know on the on uh just like a random note uh two of the very first comics that I ever bought when I was like eight or nine were drawn by you. Oh, I'm so old. It was uh... <laughs> <laughs> which this is actually not my original copy of uh, this spectacular Spider-Man annual. I had so, so much fun drawing that. I think <laughs> both of those are. Um... I'm not sure if it's that one or the one with the lizard on the cover, but in that same pocket, including that, uh, that I got to work with Stan Lee at that time, which was pretty cool. I got to illustrate a Stan Lee story. And then they told me that uh, John, uh, uh, John um, Ramita Sr. was going to ink the story. And I was like, how in the world am I getting this gig? But apparently Stan liked my work, um, according to the editor. And I started on it going, oh, my God, this I have to do the greatest work I've ever done in my life. And uh, they called me about halfway through and said, oh, John, John has to, uh, Ramita has to drop out. I'm like, uh, and in that time, it, they would just kind of, if you, they got a, a deadline crunch, they would just kind of grab any inker that was available. So you never knew what the final product would look like or if you were going to get teamed with anybody that was compatible. And um so I was like, oh, of course. So I'm, you know, get to work with Stan. I don't know who the anchor is going to be. So I'm rolling my eyes and I'm so turning on. And then they call me back. They go, George Perez is going to eat it. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, uh, that was really acceptable. So yeah, that was a very, very good time for me. I really enjoyed drawing Spider-Man in those days. Yeah. I mean, like even, um, even though it was uh, Perez who inked it, it's still just like, it's insane, A, that they were going to have uh, you working on a book with, you know, Lee and Romita, but then you get Lee and Perez. But um, Yeah, it was fantastic. That, it was just a 10-page yeah. story, but it still means a lot to me. Yeah, I mean, that uh, the Lee-Romita run of Spider-Man is probably like, uh, oh, it's my so go-to classic. as far as the definitive, like, superhero comic, yeah. as far as, like, how to do it. I think when I came on, um, it was... Um, God, I am, I'm like having a day of the day. Yeah. Um, Ross Andrew was the artist that I was uh, reading. And uh, can you still hear me okay? I'm getting a weird alerts from my computer. Am I coming through all right? Yeah. Yeah. You cut out okay. for like just a second uh, right before you yeah, mentioned Ross the, Andrew. Yeah. The computer just, I think the computer decided to use the AirPods instead of my mic. Uh, for my mic so that might actually be better sound quality I don't know anyway uh the Ross Andrew was drawing the book when I first started reading it so for me um 
but he was very much in that style of Romita. So, and then Romita Jr. would be the next uh, Spider-Man artist I'd kind of start to follow and understand and connect with uh, his style. Those that stuff is so great, though. I love that era of Spider-Man. Yeah, you know, I was um, I was talking to a friend recently about uh, you know that era of Spider-Man, and Ross Andrew might be the most underrated artist to ever work oh on that character. God, yes, yeah. I saw somebody like trashing his work the other day, and I'm like, on what planet is this stuff not amazing? I mean, he was that guy had it all. That guy was an excellent storyteller. Like I remember, like one of the first things I ever saw that he did was that I think it was Superman versus Spider-Man that I remember like really going, who is this artist? Yeah, yeah, no, some of the best paced panels uh, in the entire Spider-Man series are probably those, you know, the early Spider-Man MJ romance things where there's the one sequence where they're in the park and then there's the other one where uh, Peter's about to fly off to Europe uh, for something. Uh, And just like the that combination of the way that Andrew like paced those panels. Yeah. And Conway's writing is just perfect. It's like him and Jose Garcia Lopez are like two of the most underrated artists of that era. Like, you know their stuff immediately, but you don't really connect it with the artist. Yeah. Yeah, so um, those uh, those Spider-Man issues were also uh, some of your, I guess, initial uh, work with like big IPs, right? Yeah, I was. I had been working at Marvel a couple of years by the time I got to work on that Spider-Man stuff. I had... Uh, I think I was already in the middle of New Warriors at the time, but I had, uh, I, I don't know how I got so lucky, but like my first two mainstream gigs were awesome. Like my very first DC gig, I drew a Justice League story with J.M. DeMattis and uh, John Beatty inked me. Fantastic debut. And then they liked that so much, I ended up getting some Justice League Europe issues to draw. And in the midst of that, uh, I got to be friendly with some of the people at Marvel at the time. And my very first uh, Marvel comic ever is Wolverine number 54 with Shatterstar on the cover. So I got to go, I thought I'd work my way up to Wolverine and I got the debut on my favorite character. So it was pretty fortunate. And then, so I've been at uh, Marvel a few years by the time I got to work on that, uh, on Spider-Man. I got to do that one issue of Amazing, but which is typical of my career is that by the time I get to work on something iconic like Spider-Man, like he's not in his Spider-Man outfit. He's in, <laughs> he was Scarlet Spider at the time, you know? So I didn't really get to draw Spider-Man per se, but then there was plenty of other opportunities where I did get to, but that was uh, same with, I got to do an Avengers issue, uh, uh, Spider-Man team up uh, that George ended up writing. George was really nice to me. I, I, didn't, I, I miss him, but he, uh, he was kind enough to like uh, call me up while he was working on that stuff that I was slaved over and was then terrified that he was working on because I thought he was going to call me up and just tell me how terrible my work was. And he did the opposite. He was like, oh, I really love your stuff. And it meant the world to me because I grew up copying his stuff out of Teen Titans to learn to draw. Yeah. And like he was the master of doing just like these big scenes with a ton of people on the page, but not making it feel never felt cluttered. Yeah. Yeah. No, he had an amazing ability to lay out a page and do interesting panel borders. And yeah, I loved his work. And he also made his characters, they would always be uh, one of the first times I think I ever really saw an artist that would make superheroes look natural, like, like real people doing real things. Like he did a thing where he had a uh, Dick Grayson changing out of his Robin uniform and he was unlacing the tunic. And like, I don't know why, but I mean, up until then, I'd always seen that thing as a one piece deal. 
just like because I had an action figure, I had those Mego action figures, and uh, like their clothing, it just was like a shirt you pulled on, you know. And in his mind, he saw that there was like a green tunic underneath, and that top thing was something that had to be laced up and tightened with a belt. And I was like, well, of course, but it didn't really connect with me until I saw George kind of deconstructing it. And, and it was just a casual panel, like they were like in the locker room, gonna go put on regular people's clothes. But he also had a, like a great panel, like uh, Dick Grayson, like tugging on a glove with his teeth. And I'm like, oh, that's so cool. It was so natural that I really, it really had a huge impact on me as a young man, just starting to draw. Yeah, yeah, I had that same experience uh, the first time that I saw um, a panel of like Spider-Man where he like removes the shirt part of the costume and you realize, oh, this isn't like a onesie, like there's actually yeah. like the pants and then there's a belt under there. I have a drawing I did just for fun a while back and it ended up being, I, I coincidentally, very close to what they did when they first showed um, the uh, Tom Holland and his homemade suit uh for homecoming and i was uh, but I, I drew it out with like i tried to draw a spider-man like with a teenager's body and this is sort of like a pullover hood and that the the top was like a sweatshirt that you have to tuck the mask into and so i was trying to think it through just in real people like on a budget clothes and uh, it ended up being a fun drawing yeah, and you uh, you mentioned uh, your work on Wolverine, and they just put out this omnibus that has you know, a huge chunk of that. Uh, with a lot of the talk, I know that they've got Hugh Jackman coming back to play him uh, again Deadpool. in the Deadpool movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know, eventually they're gonna have to have like you know their MCU version of Wolverine, and I'm really crossing my fingers that they finally give us like five foot two yeah Canadian accent Wolverine I, yeah me too like I always and I love Hugh Jackman's performance yeah. it's like it's hard for it really interfered with what I was doing at the time because they just like had me and Greg Rucka relaunch the book and then the movies blew up at the same time so the people that were you know the big thinkers at Marvel thought oh, okay well Wolverine should look like he does in the movies so change everything you're doing and I was like everybody had to kind of got that directive. We're all going to get on the page and it all has to look like Hugh Jackman, but not just like him because we can't use his likeness. But I'm like, but Hugh Jackman's great. I love his Wolverine depiction, but he's six two. <laughs> he's like a full foot taller than Wolverine should be. I'm not, I'm not a tall man, you know? And so I know that when I'm standing up, I just figured it out. Okay. Well, if I'm this height, then Wolverine be about up to my chin, you know, like I'd be tall next to Wolverine. So I know he's a little guy and they call him runt and puny and all that throughout the comic book. And, and it's still in the handbook that he's five foot two, you know, or five, three. And uh, so I drew him like that. And then I was surprised how much pushback there was on it, but I'm like, but that's what it says in the handbook. So I get all, I get all, uh, uh, any any Wilkes from uh, Misery about it. He did get out of the cock-a-duty car. You know, it's like, I get all up in the rules. Yeah, because the handbook also, uh, you know, used to note that he was, I think it was um, like 180 or 190 without the adamantium and like 300 something with it. Yeah, and it, 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 that's what I, 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 when I was drawing Wolverine, especially when they really let me get in there and do it. Hold on just a second. I don't know if you could push pause on the recording. I'm having a, uh, I'm having a problem with my microphone. So I'm going to say... How does that sound? That sounds good. Okay. 
that's because it's going off of these now. I have a mic set up, but it's trying to, my computer doesn't know which one I want to use. So it's been going back and forth and I'm afraid it's going to cut out my audio while we're talking. Um, but that sounds okay. Yeah. All right. Did it sound better before? Oh, no, both sound good. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, um, Anyways, I, I just, when I was drawing Wolverine, and I, I love the character. I've loved him since I was a teenager. I got my teenage drawings of Wolverine still, like, uh, when I first fell in love with the X-Men book and just thought he was the greatest character. So ever actually getting to work on him and, and uh, reboot the book with, with a talented writer like Rucka was bliss. And uh, so, but I, one of the main things I really wanted to do is like just apply all of my thinking over the years of what he would be like, how he would stand. And, you know, the fact that he would, every time that guy stands up, it's got to hurt because he's carrying around. It's like, imagine carrying like two suitcases full of stuff that you can never put down. That's what his whole body must feel like. And he's an old dude. I mean, even though he looks like he's uh, you know, ripped and in his late thirties, early forties, that guy's like a hundred years old. His healing factor keeps him going, but I, I think he smokes and drinks as much as he does is because he's just in pain all the time, you know? So he's just trying to numb the pain in whatever way he can mentally and physically. And so that should reflect in his character. And I just think that that's also a guy that, you know, I always love the character that the idea that him sitting in a bar somewhere and, and, you know, some jackass thinking he's going to push around the little guy, and having no idea what he's what the can of worms he's opening by picking on somebody that's smaller than him just because of the way he looks, you know, somebody's elbowing Wolvie at the bar, going, oh, "Get out of the way, run!" Like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah, you know, the, I, love, one... I love that aspect of the character that he kind of hides in plain sight. And everybody, and the other thing that made me crazy about it was that they all look like these archetype characters like Cyclops. He's like six one and a slim, you know, muscular dude. And they're all, they're all just like one kind of body type. What I loved about Wolverine is that he didn't look like everybody else. No, he looked like he should, and yet he could take on the Hulk. That's amazing. You know, and they should glorify that aspect of the character and not, uh, you know, do the, they do these pieces with like Wolverine and Phoenix kissing but they're like eye to eye and when you see phoenix next to cyclops they're like almost the same height these things bother me i <laughs> yeah you know, i'm, I'm the same do. way because it's like um you know they've at different times over the years they've also kind of had an explanation that because of how heavy his um his skeleton is the his healing factor has kind of accounted for it yeah uh, to the extent that he has like that's why yeah. he's well, he's got that's like a degree of like super strength for it too. Yeah. Yeah. That's why he's ripped though. I think that's why he's such a muscular little like uh tank of a guy is because every time he moves, he's lifting weights basically. And then the way you build muscle is that you tear it down and then it swells up when it grows back. That's why when you lift weights at the gym, yes, I'm a perfect example of that. Um, but you, when you do that, you know, you're tearing your muscles apart so they heal up bigger and that's how these guys get swole. So if that's how Wolverine's body just does that naturally, then he just would naturally, with a healing factor working overtime, he just naturally be big, you know? It just yeah. makes sense to me. <laughs> you know, my my favorite explanation of that over the years too has been that uh, because of how heavy his skeleton is, it's also why he's afraid of large bodies of water. Oh, that's interesting. Like there's yeah, a, there was he, a thing about a decade ago that he can't swim. I don't think he could drown though. Yeah. So it's basically like he's stuck in like this purgatory if he falls in the ocean. 
he would be if he can't if he can't get to the surface but he could probably walk yeah he could probably just walking walk as he's drowning walk the bottom <laughs> of the ocean until he gets to the shore because every time he drowned he would just heal <laughs> <laughs> there's like uh there's probably uh, a short story in there somewhere yeah it's probably not one anybody would read but <laughs> So yeah, I guess your uh, your first like really big break, uh, as you mentioned earlier, came with New Warriors. Um, yeah, that was my first monthly book. I mean, if you don't count the six issues of Justice League Europe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, with with that being something that was such a big part of your career early on, uh, and with a lot of a lot more properties along those lines slowly being introduced into live action via the MCU. Uh, yeah. Are there any characters that you're particularly attached to that, you know, you're excited about the idea of eventually seeing transferred over to that medium? I, I, I with the exception of maybe uh, Namor, who didn't resonate with me the way he did in the comic books. There was like, I liked, if I'd never read Namor in the comics and I saw that Namor that they did in Wakanda forever, I'd probably like him more, but he fell below what I thought the character should be like, but then, you know, when you're an old dude that grew up on seventies comics, you bring your, you bring all your predispositions to those films. So um, I think they've done an excellent job overall of, of adapting these characters. So I, I sort of try to leave my, uh, my uh, presumptions at the door. You know, I don't want to come in prejudiced and not have any fun ever. You know, there's too much of that already in my opinion. Like if they, if it's good, let it be what it is. Um, I would like to see the new warriors adapted. That would be fun. But, um, uh, you know, I, I, I also just love them just for I, the world of comic books should be able to just be its own little planet over here. And then the movies, it's this planet over here, you know, but the MCU has showed that uh, how successful it is when you actually give credence and respect to the source material, as opposed to just trying to reinvent the wheel every time. So yeah, I don't know. I but I, so I I like I've I've always been a big fan of Speedball. I, I think he's a, but I like him for all the wrong reasons. I like him because he's. I always saw him like, um, if I could have cast him back in the day, like a young Michael Anthony Hall trying to hang out with you know like he is in Weird Science trying to hang out with the Avengers as they are right now. Tom Holland captures that really well. Like as his Spider Man is like wonderfully geeky and awkward. Like, that's the way I see Speedball being. Like, he's got this power that doesn't really make a lot of sense, and it's not that sexy, but uh, it is power. And he has to kind of, but he wants so badly to fit in with the with the cool kids that, you know, he overthinks himself. That's, I wrote him a little bit, so that's that's my take on Robbie Baldwin. But I like that character because he's not cool. Like he's and that that's why there was uh, the inside joke that I don't know resonated back then was all the all the superheroes in the 90s around the time I was working on that book were getting they put leather jackets on everybody kind of like they did because Jim Lee did a introduce some leather jackets to the X-Men and it looked awesome. So all of a sudden, all the MCU, <laughs> the, the Avengers were wearing jackets, everybody was wearing jackets. So I got this long trench coat. And put it on the speedball because I got to redesign the characters and I put a jacket on Firestar, guilty. But um, I put a jacket on Robbie Baldwin because it was stupid. <laughs> like he's got this jacket trailing, like, you know, he's bouncing, turning upside down, but he's got this jacket flying out behind him or flopping over his head when he lands or, you know, but he wants to be cool and fit in. So he's wearing this jacket. 
Yeah, I mean, he's had kind of a... Um, I don't know if weird is the right word for the character arc over the year, but it's it's had some uh, interesting uh, turns over the year, like that that period that he spent as a uh, penance where he had like this yeah, spiky costume. That <laughs> didn't work for me at all. And I, 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 you know, it just for me that like it took the fun out of the character. But yeah, you know, I was I was long gone by then. So that's just me as a fan talking. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of how I feel whenever people talk about uh, wanting like dark and gritty Spider-Man. And it's just kind of like, do you understand Spider-Man as a character? <laughs> yeah, but, but I mean, I like the, the nice thing about Spider-Man is you can do both. Like he can yeah. have an arc where he gets dark and gritty. Like uh, I love that Jam Dematis Mike Zek uh, run where he's Craven's last hunt. Oh, yeah, it's one of my favorite stories too. It's but Brilliant. like my my thing is like you can't have Spider-Man stay dark for too long. It has to be no, like, he, just enough to have an impact. He should enjoy being Spider-Man. Like yeah. Spider-Man at his best is like he escapes into the character. Like he wants to be the character, you know, like he is like putting on the mask and swinging around New York. That's why I love the way they ended um, the No Way Home is that he's all on his own. He's miserable. He's in a crappy little apartment, which is exactly where Peter Parker should be. And he got a little sewing machine there. Like I thought that was amazing. And then put, you know, instead of hanging around, open in the apartment, puts on his suit, goes out swinging, you know, that's Spider-Man. That was like one of the best five minutes of Spider-Man. I think I saw in the entire movie history for me personally, it looked like the Ramita costume, the classic costume, and there were no bells and whistles and he's got nobody and he's on his own. I'm like, they got the character right back down to the, to the roots. And that's where they left the trilogy. I'm like, that's brilliant. Now, when you bring him back another for another movie, you can start fresh. Pretty incredible. Uh, I mean, even down to showing him sewing the costume himself. That's uh, brilliant. Yeah. I that's mean, to what your he point, did. Yeah. To, to your point, too, um, you know, Craven's Last Hunt, I would have to say, is probably the definitive way to do a dark Spider-Man story because it's just long so enough too. that it doesn't overstay its welcome. Absolutely. But him waking up in a grave, man, like that's pretty dark. <laughs> Yeah. buried alive <laughs> uh speaking of uh of dark uh you're the co-creator of the boys which is now uh i guess probably the the number one stream show on prime right uh on prime i think yeah i think in the world is number two just behind stranger things we learned and i saw another article that said we're out we're doing better than all the streaming shows the marvel streaming shows on disney so kudos to eric kripke and seth rogan man those guys know what they're doing yeah, I mean, that's had, you know, quite a, a journey to getting to the screen. Uh, yeah. I know it was originally optioned and... Um, yeah, it was you know, a long had... 10 years. I, I gave up on it by the time it actually became a TV show. I was completely like, this is never going to happen. It's going to be like everything else that's come along and, you know, promised to be something huge and that didn't happen. So I just assumed that was going to go the same way. But here we are. Yeah, I mean, I think they've done the a great job of translating the comic book to uh, the screen where um, just in the way the different things in the world have changed since the comic was originally published. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, just from like the the media that's represented in the uh, in the film and or I mean, in the TV show. Um, it's it's really it maintains the heart and soul of the comic and the overall Agreed. message but it yeah. it yeah no they've done their own thing with it which i actually applaud i think it's 
Um, uh, I think Carl Urban said that if it was a verbatim translation of the book as it was back in 2007, I don't think he, he's like, I don't think I could do this. It's, but what they're doing with the show is like, they didn't take the teeth out of it. They, but they brought, they put the teeth in a different bite. And I think the show is, you know, it's funny and it's graphic like it needed to be, you know, and that's the, when I first met Eric Kripke, he was kind enough to sit down with me and he hadn't started writing the episode yet. And he wanted to know like what I wanted the show to look like. And he had had a similar conversation with uh, Ennis apparently. And I was like, I just couldn't even believe I was getting to chime in or give him my opinion, but we had a talk and I just said, it needs to be funny. If it's not funny, it's just going to be a long, dark slog and people are going to dial out because it's a dark story, but the humor really keeps it going. And that's what I loved about the comic is there were like genuinely funny moments in the comic. And he said, yeah. And then I also, I, I, I advocated for making sure that in the pilot that you had the moment with Huey holding Robin's arms uh, because I said, if you do that, and he, he didn't know why it was important to me. Uh, but I said, well, if you do it and it's done right, the that's where everybody will connect with Huey. And at the same time, like, that's where the fans of the comic are going to go, oh, these guys get it. And the people that have never seen the show before uh, or read the comic before will have that moment of shock, too, because that's a very important uh, beat, I, I think, in the entire arc of the thing, because that's where, you know, Huey, who's the major character, becomes uh, introduced to the dangers of that world, you know, by losing, yeah. losing his girl. But and then. Jack Quay is just amazing in that moment too. Like if I couldn't have been any better, Dan Trachtenberg, who would go on to do Prey, this is the, the new Predator movie. He directed that. The, um, he directed the pilot of the boys and it was his idea to slow it down into slow motion. And I thought, man, that is brilliant because when you read it in the comic, I was like, when I was drawing it, like I needed to me, it needed to be important to me that it happens so quick that you're suddenly, it slaps you in the face. And instead, like he slowed it down in a, such a brilliant way that like you don't know what's happening. You just see like the wind on Huey's face and then the first little splatter of blood and then it gets worse and worse and worse before it pull out in the reveal. So it's incredible to show. I, I bring that up because that's a perfect example. Like I was saying over before, like, you know, comics and movies, they should be on their own little planets because they're two very different uh, forms of storytelling. And when you have a film, and it's something like you can decide when people you, you decide for the audience when something's going to change or what they're going to see and when and how much of it like if head explodes you just want to show it for a second you can cut but in a comic i've got an exploding head uh panel you can sit there and stare at it for as long as you want before you turn the page so it's kind of like you and then and it's silent you're actually imagining so much like the, like our job uh, as illustrators, like we're supposed to trick your brain into filling in the gaps. Like you hear the sound or you imagine what the voice sounds like when you're reading, but you don't actually hear anything. It's just your imagination and the gutters in between tell you when the time cuts are. So, but with movie, you've got soundtrack and you've got special effects and you've got everything kind of there for you to where your imagination, you can get caught up in that world by observing it. But when you're caught up in a world of reading a comic, you're uh, absorbing it rather than observing. Yeah. You know, I, um, you threw a lot out there, but it's, uh, it's a <laughs> lot of things that like, I think about all the time. Cause, um, 
to what you were saying about like imagining the sounds of like the voices and everything in your head and the sound yeah. effects while you're reading the book it's always been interesting to me that I have like periods of what I thought things would sound like before they were adapted and then how they sound to me in my head after I see them adapted and I think like the the best thing that I can think of off my head uh, or off the top of my head is like uh what venom sounds like to me because i never thought of it as being um before they made the movie i never thought of venom as being like this the symbiote itself being like a gruff like kind of loud voice but it makes sense now but like i always thought that it would sound like a little bit creepier and more um kind of like weird but um because the, there's like there's a there's a certain like voice that I attribute to the kind of like waving uh, voice or uh, voice caption boxes. You know what I mean? Where the yeah kind of wavy, like more alien. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, it's like, like I said. That's why it's hard not to bring your own predispositions to a film because we all have this idea of what the stuff should be before we ever just before the movie even starts. And that's why I say, like, I liked, if I had never seen read Namor in the comics, the Namor that I got on screen, I think I'd like a lot. But because he was so mostly an attitude, like he wasn't as regal or arrogant as I see Namor being. Like, I always thought of Namor as being, like, really cold. And, like, in a in a in my perfect world of casting, if he's going to look like the comic book, be like young Jeff Goldblum, you know, when he was, like, really ripped in the fly, you know. And I think like that's sort of how I thought he would be like awkward and yet kind of arrogant. But that guy in in Wakanda Forever, he was terrific. But uh, he, that wasn't my name or you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like I I'm not I'm not uh, throwing any shade at him. I actually like the movie, but um, I just it just was so different than what I was expecting that I was like, oh okay, I have to like watch it a couple more times. But at the same time, like now Robert Downey Jr. will forever be Iron Man in my head. You know, like I can't go back to the old mustachioed, uh, you know, uh, Tony Stark of the 70s. You know, I agree with all of that too. Um, although with uh, with Namor, I think on, on my end, uh, and, you know, to your point too, uh, you know, over the course of a few more movies, I think that they'll they'll get him to that point. I, uh, I I'm confident whatever they're doing over there, then it, it's working. That's that's yeah. all. I, I've yet to see a single one of those movies I didn't at least like. I, yeah. I either love them or I like them. That's why I'm kind of excited about James Gunn being over at DC and taking over everything, and that he's going to direct the next Superman movie. I'm like, yes, like that's a guy that knows. He took Guardians of the Galaxy, and it was like a nothing property, and turned it into a major franchise and made all those characters lovable and, and memorable Mike if he can do that with Guardians of the Galaxy like you've got my vote yeah I just I want a hopeful aspirational Superman as opposed to like trying to make him relatable I think so I think that's what we're gonna get I think if there's any if you look at what uh, Gunn is advertising that he's reading even like he's reading the the Grant Morrison Frank quietly superman stuff and you know i think he i think this is i think it's the right man for the job i'm very optimistic about how that's all going to play out yeah yeah so uh back to the boys um the uh thing that you mentioned too about the difference between uh you know robin's death scene in the comics and then in the show 
uh, you know, to your point on that too, the slow motion really made that pop so much more on the screen because when they pan out and show everything, like you see like a piece of like spinal cord in there and it's just yeah, like, oh, wow, it's brutal. Is, yeah. I got to see that in an early production cut. They sent it to me while it was like still being edited so I could see the first episode. And I was just blown away. The fact that my wife liked it was uh, a good indicator for where the show was going to go because she's not into the sci-fi superhero stuff at all. Like she, she knows my work because I'm her husband. But in, and her choices of things, like that's not her jam. But she was like, I would watch this show. And so I'm like, that's a good, that's a good indicator. So that, but I saw this early rough cut and all of it was this like sort of like tan gray wave, but you could see the little pieces like delineated in the early uh, graphics that I'm like, oh my God, there's like teeth and spinal cord. <laughs> uh, it's brutal. Yeah. That's, no, but the... it needs to be, but that's why it works though. It needed to be, it needs to be that brutal. Because if it's not, then it doesn't impact what a threat these characters are to the world at large. Yeah, I mean, I know so many people who love the show who would never like the comic if they tried to read it, too. Like, yeah, I think that's I also just a testament to to the underlying, I think the underlying message of the source material, because I think despite the fact that it's brutally violent and has, like, all this crude humor in it, it still has a heart beneath it. And that metaphor of... um just how intense power corrupts and it works as a metaphor for what happens when all these, when a large organization has like a ton of power through the lens of like, you know, superheroes as that organization. And then when there's also this very well-polished PR machine in place in front of it too. that That's the root of the whole idea. That's the whole idea. Like when Ennis approached me about it, it's like, that was the core concept is that comic books and action figures they they exist in in that world because these are actual people but that's the pr that's all the uh you know the veneer i don't know if you watch the diabolical animated shorts yeah. but yeah. the one that garth actually wrote has a really great moment in it and it shows that he you know towards the end after the big accident has happened uh, like one of them, like goes, look in the sun, you can see these alien ships, and everybody looks up into the sun and can't see anything, but they're like, yeah, I see it, and then they fly off just so they can get out of there. But that's like a perfect example of like they have some story ready to go. And, you know, Hero Gasm was supposed to be when you know they're off on having the Secret Wars battle uh, and fighting fighting the aliens and villains on a, another planet, but in reality, they're just off on an island having a hedonistic weekend. So, you know, that's yeah. the whole idea is that what, what we see, and it's amazing how prescient the whole thing became, but it's like what you see presented to you is not what's, is not what's going on. And people that are presented to you as being moral and good, they're actually terrible behind the scenes and and but the boys know that and that's why the story works and i think that's why it works in this adaptation as well yeah and is it weird to you now when you see like you know there's kind of like a homelander fandom that's kind of like it's, a it's, homelander is right kind of thing well it's ironic i mean if they don't know that he's the bad guy i i, I don't know what to tell you yeah i mean it's uh, i feel like it's kind of similar to 
it's not exactly like parallel to it, but it's kind of in the same vein as, you know, what I imagine um, Gary Conway probably feels when he sees people like misappropriating the Punisher logo because very much so he's talked about that yeah. too yeah there's a great uh moment in the I worked enough on Punisher to have an opinion but uh there's a really great beat that they wrote into the Punisher where uh cops are putting a Punisher logo on their car and he's like if I ever catch you doing like what I do I'll kill you and they're like well, how can you say that and he goes I didn't take an oath you did you know yeah, I mean, there's been several moments like that that they've uh, written into different Punisher series too that um, always stick out to me because there's there's the other one that people highlight a lot from, um, I think it was during Civil War where Captain America punches the Punisher. Uh, or I forget what the exact reason was, but it was kind of along the same vein. Well, you know, the irony of that is too with like Punisher and Homelander, it's like, Punisher started out as a Spider-Man villain. He was not supposed to be a good yeah. guy. You know, it's like he morphed into this vigilante that you root for because he gets he gets away with murder, literally. So um, I find that interesting and in how he's woven into the zeitgeist of, uh, you know, our current culture when once upon a time being a vigilante with a rifle made you a bad guy. And now we're in a world where that's messy, you know, yeah. where they believe in, you know, there's a whole argument for uh, nothing stops a bad guy with a gun, like a good guy with a gun. And I guess the Punisher is that good guy with a gun, but who holds him accountable, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I make that Spider-Man villain point a lot too. And, uh, you know, one of the, the other things that uh, always sticks out, to the Punisher or to me with the Punisher in my mind is that like there's that Punisher Archie crossover from back in the day too. Agree. The Punisher was going to kill so Jughead fun. just because he looked like a, a offender, but <laughs> without finding out for sure that Jughead was the actual guy, he's just going to shoot him. Yeah. That was a great story. That was such a, whoever put that together. I just, I, I always think like, cause not only was it a hilarious concept, it worked. And then you could see the whole Archie franchise change after that. Like, I don't think you would have had Riverdale if you didn't have that Archie Punisher <laughs> I got to do a cover for Archie versus Predator, which is outrageously silly. <laughs> but I love it. That's the thing about that I do like about comic books, though. It's like, if we all remember that this is... like I, I feel like people don't know how to separate fantasy and fiction and from reality anymore. You'll literally hear people quoting stuff. I, I saw something the other day where a woman was talking. She goes, Oh, I saw this movie where they changed the machines and they were able to just change the votes. I'm like, yeah, it's a movie. <laughs> it's like you can do anything in a movie. It's a comic book. You can do whatever you want in a comic book. But that doesn't mean you apply it to reality, you know. But I think we live so much in our, our screens now. Like we're also like less social than we used to be, but then weirdly more social than we've ever been that uh you know we we communicate like you and i talking over the computer right now like what part of the country are you in i'm in uh chicago yeah so there you are you're in chicago i'm in california and yet we're having a real-time conversation like it's nothing i mean there's been felt telephones for a long time but it's like we're sitting in a room together and that's like a weird kind of magic that i didn't have growing up you know like this is still a new world i don't think everybody's used to it yet 
I think we're going through growing pains as a society and, and we don't quite know how to, you can't trust your eyes anymore. And I think that's really interesting as well. And now apparently there's AI that can mimic your loved one's voices. And I'm like, yeah, talk about seeing that in a movie. Didn't they do that in Total Recall? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, it's, Terminator uh, it's did it. too. at one point Terminator's on the phone uh, doing his mom's <laughs> voice like that's right out of the movies but that's reality now like that we have that technology see that blows my mind like we're I stuff that we were just imagining 20 years ago is happening in real time like I did this book called Transmetropolitan and like we Warren Ellison and I were like thinking up the future and so much of it came true that it's like kind of horrifying like I just thought, I thought this would be some distant future that would never exist. And, and of all the things I thought of, I never imagined iPhones. Yeah. <laughs> like I had these, I had everybody run around with these helmets that do with I do what iPhones would do. Like you could have a computer and music, and, but it's a helmet, you know, because you could be hands free. I mean, but, we also uh, got the Smiler too, but uh, that's a whole other can of worms. <laughs> a couple, a couple times over. It's like five. It's funny when you bring that up too. It's like because that's again, it's like. Uh, one one people one side will go oh that's biden another side will go oh that's trump you know it's like but it's you he's a character you can project what you want onto him so whatever version of the smiler you imagine that guy fits the bill i think if i personally i think paul ryan uh looks the most like the smiler but (laughs) yeah i mean it's um it's interesting that there's there's just like a whole archetype of politician now that is essentially the smiler. <laughs> yeah, no, it's creepy. And that's like, you know, and again, that brings a full circle to the boys as well, is that, you know, it, we are being trained and getting comfortable with not uh, not doing our research as people. We don't do our research. We can't trust. We, we get we have selective places where we can go and choose where we do our research and find the res- the answers we want to hear. And, you know, and I worry about myself in that regard. I try to be on guard for that. But at the same time, you, uh, you can't trust your eyes. And yet people are being deceived more than ever. Like the people that are supposedly the, the, moralist and the, you know, the people you can trust, like they're the ones you find getting busted for the most, you know, disgusting stuff. You know, I think about Jared from Subway, for example, you know, how they pushed that guy on the TV for how many years? Like, oh, I'm a good guy that, you know, I got this family and I lost all this weight, eat Subway sandwiches and Merry Christmas. And he's a pet, he's like the worst of the worst monster pedophile you could imagine and actively using his influence and money to get little kids. I mean, that's so gross. And like, yet he was this corporate sponsor for, so many years he was like subways ronald mcdonald you know yeah well it's the, so, the crazy thing about so that too weird is south park uh had him as kind they of like a creepy it. figure like several years before that happened absolutely which is so <laughs> funny too because it's like south park has that fantastic episode like simpsons did it simpsons did it but like you know you can just as easily go south park called it south park called it <laughs> Yeah, to um, back to what you were saying about like everyone being more connected, you know, than ever now. I think like the um, the unfortunate kind of uh, dichotomy of that now, or duality, or you know, whatever the the correct word is. Uh, um, as I'm just kind of like you know thinking of all of this, is that like we have the internet now where we can all just like share every idea that has ever existed all at once. 
mm-hmm. but the that means both all of like the great like you know wonderful pieces of knowledge and wisdom and whatnot but then it also has allowed a place where um every uh village's idiot now can connect with all of the other village idiots and no, share have, their ideas they're not alone movie, anymore do you ever see the movie get on up with james about james brown was the do you ever see that it's a biopic uh, uh, um chadwick boseman was that his name the guy who played uh black panther was yeah. chadwick boseman am i saying yeah. his name right i'm having a bad name day so okay good thank you because he just passed away and i would hate to say his name wrong but he plays james brown in that and there's a really great scene in it and uh where james brown it's, it's certainly it's a very contentious time i think it's right after martin luther king was shot um in the storyline and he's doing a concert and a lot of the people in the audience these young black people are really angry with good reason and one of them gets up on stage and starts dancing while he's doing his show and they go to rush him off and at first if i'm i might be this might just be my memory of the movie, but um, he they go to rush him, uh, get him off the stage, and James Brown's like, "No, no, it's cool. Let let the let the brother dance." And then like they, but then more kids get up, and pretty soon there's so many people on stage, it starts to get chaotic. And James Brown shuts the whole concert down at that moment and goes, "Listen, do you want me to put on a show, or do you want to be the show?" And there, so he got everybody to kind of calm down, take their seats again. And he went back to performing. But I always think that that's the internet in a nutshell right now. Like everybody's the show. Like we, we, you can't have, uh, it's difficult because everybody's got a microphone, you know, like everybody's got their own camera and microphone. When you were, when I was a kid, it was pretty special if you could get your hands on a camera on a microphone and getting it broadcast was really special. But, you know, and I, I often think about that with like, you know, with comic book criticism, because like once upon a time, you know, if you didn't like something that was happening in a comic book, you had to get out a piece of paper and roll it into a typewriter and get make sure your ribbon was fresh and have your little jar of liquid paper and dear editor. And you'd write, I don't like the way Spider-Man is talking to Mary Jane these days. You'd put your whole thing out there. And your spiel, and you have to put your address and your name, and then you get a stamp and put it in an envelope, take it to the post office, put it in the mailbox. And then maybe a couple of weeks later, the editor would get that letter and go, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I don't, I don't agree. And that would be <laughs> the end of it. And now it's like, you know, but, or he might go, oh, this is a brilliant, brilliant point. And you open up the comic book, hey, they printed my letter. And everybody would be really excited for you. The George R.R. R. Martin has a letter in a Marvel comic um but now it's like every you don't have to do that you just got to get on twitter or get your you know record something for youtube and this is the worst comic book i've ever read you know your opinions right out there with everybody else's so i don't know i i think it's 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 equally liberating and and real-time terrifying and now here comes ai to get right in the middle of the end in the middle of the conversation yeah, I mean, like it's it's still wild to me that um, people like Dan Slott and Tom King have had to have yeah. bodyguards at Comic Con over Spider Man and Batman stories. That's un- that's unreal. That's not the way it's supposed to work. I mean, it's supposed to be for fun. It's supposed to be fantasy. But everybody, you know, like I said, you once upon a time you understood that, like, hey, if I want to, like, this is my life. I if I wanted to draw 
Like I had an argument back in 2003, going back to the Wolverine being short thing. I remember being having, this is the days of like, you know, message forums that you would talk to people. And I remember ending up on an inline online argument. And I said, you know, somebody was complaining that Wolverine was too short. And I said, and I was fighting back about that. You know, and I thought it was just fans talking to fans, basically. Like, even though I was the creator at the time, I was able to, you know, I'm a Wolverine fan too. And they're like, but I'm the biggest Wolverine fan. I got every issue of this thing. I go, look, I loved Wolverine so much that as a 14-year-old kid, I started learning how to draw. And now I actually am the guy drawing Wolverine. I win. I'm the bigger fan. <laughs> I devoted my life to this. And now I actually work for Marvel Comics drawing Wolverine. So don't tell me you're like somehow I, you're a bigger fan than me. That doesn't work. I mean, I'm a fan too. That's why I did this for my whole life, you know, but it's at the same time, you don't want to invalidate somebody else's love of the character, but I, I don't know why we can't have a, uh, creators and fans can't have a kumbaya, mo kumbaya moment where we're like, hey, we both love these characters. That's like, I see James Gunn out there defending himself all the time right now, saying that, you know, hey, I love these characters too. But people are like, but I need this other version that they aren't doing anymore. I don't understand it. But I think it just comes down to what we were saying a minute ago, where like there's such a cacophony of, of opinion that you can't uh, really delineate. Uh, what is valid criticism and what is opinion and you know and what is you know and how do you define that in the first place i don't know yeah i mean i think it's, it's it becomes so much more like clear too once you're actually like at the cons um because it, it was interesting to me uh just going to some of the first cons that i've gone to since the pandemic happened where uh this past year i was at c2e2 and i had gone to a, a spider-man panel that had C.B. Sabolsky and Ryan Stegman. And there was a Q&A session at the end. And this guy walks up and he's probably like late 30s, early 40s. And he's like just hyperventilating uh, like, Spider-Man is all about responsibility, but you all don't give Peter Parker the greatest responsibility a man can ever have and make him be married to Mary Jane and have a kid. And like behind me, like, is this guy's hyperventilating? I just hear these like some like younger fans and they're like, oh God, one of these guys again. And <laughs> it's just like, it's funny to, to be around, uh, you know, in a space like that where you don't just have one set of really loud voices on the internet saying one thing, but you get like all the voices at once and you're like, yeah, this guy might not like the direction, but there's a whole lot of other people that do like the direction that it's going in right well, now. I find that really ironic because I, when I was working on that uh, run of Spider-Man, I was drawing pregnant Mary Jane and they were married. And so I think uh, they just undid that for continuity sake, because those stories run out. What are we going to have geriatric Peter Parker? You know, like, like that's what comes next. I want to, I'm, I'm more interested in teenage Peter Parker. It's, it's always to me more interesting, like, cause then that's where the great power becomes great responsibility has to really come into play when you're young. You know, that's when you have to learn that lesson and live it rather than, you know, just preach it. But um, I find that uh, I think what what another thing that has happened in our generation that is unlike the comic book generations before is if you look at there's a really great documentary. If you've never seen it, I'm recommending to everybody watching this called Comic Book Confidential. 
and it came out in the late 80s and you see a lot of famous creators in their youth there like jack kirby's still alive they interviewed him in it but it's brilliant and it was all about how in the 50s the government came in and censored comic books and for a long time if you grew up in my generation all the comic books had this stamp on them said the comic books uh code authority and it was like a basically a, a sanctioned government censorship system very not first amendment and uh, but what happened is up until then, uh, one of the things that reason, here's, here's a little fun fact, the reason that comic books are the size that they are is because they started printing them rather than magazine size. I don't know if they ever were, but I know at one point they started printing them so they, the GIs could fit them in their pocket while they were, you know, in, in military gear and, and on the front line so they could have something to read in a box hole. And a lot of those comics were basically for young adults and people that were seeing the horrors of war so they could have entertainment and a lot of those guys came home still loving comic books and so you had all the ec comics from the era you had vault of horror and crypt you know or a crypt show and tales from the crypt stuff like that and that was all the ec mad magazine all that was part of that era but uh they got shut down because they thought it was causing juvenile delinquency and then they sanitized the comic books and then comic books definitely were being aimed at a very young audience and that continued on well into the 70s and early 80s so you couldn't do certain things and then in the mid 80s everything kind of blew up with Watchmen and Dark Knight and by the 90s uh, comic book uh, publishers pulled away from the that comics code authority and basically just stopped adhering to it and it just sort of went away but then we started getting the best stuff you know like stuff like the boys in transmetropolitan couldn't exist if they didn't have these other imprints but, but they pulled them off a of newsstands and you couldn't sell on a newsstand unless you had that stamp so if you had that stamp on the cover then you could sell on a newsstand so it's interesting because now you've got a whole generation of people that have grown up with these characters and have been reading them for 30 40 years you know and uh, they love it but they have their own imprint of what it's supposed to be. And if you have that, it's like you can't, you can't go away from that. You can't try something new without upsetting the people that came before. And I'm a hypocrite because here I am going, Wolverine is five foot two. And I get really worked up about that. Well, that's my opinion. That's how I see it. But if, if he's more popular as six foot one and more people want that, then who am I to say you shouldn't be six one now? I don't know. It's just the way I love the character. But a lot of people, they bring that with them, that they bring that, uh, it comes from a place of loving the material, but it gets out of control when you can't see any other version of it. Yeah, yeah, because I mean, there's, I feel like there's this whole subset of fandoms, uh, you know, just kind of across the board where when they say that they want new stories, they want new stories that are, revamped told exactly the like that they loved yeah they want new stories that are told exactly like the old stories you know yeah it's a conundrum i i don't know i think the best thing if i personally had an opinion to express on the topic it's like if you love stuff like that then you should find a way to support more indie comics and original stuff because then you can get on the ground floor of a brand new thing that you may grow to love just as much as you love spider-man but i also think with spider-man superman all these characters that i love so much 
I know there's an expiration date. We haven't hit it yet, but there is because once upon a time, the coolest characters in the world were the Lone Ranger and uh, Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers. And these guys were the coolest of the cool. They were the top franchise. They were making little movies about them. You know, you'd go to a Saturday afternoon serial and you'd see a Buck, a Flash Gordon uh, movie before the main feature. And that had a scroll at the opening. And that's what Lucas adapted and took. And now when you see Star Wars and it opens like that, that's right out of an old Flash Gordon serial. But how often do you hear about Flash Gordon anymore? You know, when's the last yeah. time you got excited about Buck Rogers? When's, <laughs> when's the last time you cared about the Lone Ranger? You know, and it'll happen with these characters too. Uh, you know, unless they keep breathing new life into them, which is what they've managed to do, you know, with Batman. I mean, I, I think that's also an incredible thing because there's so few things in our culture and society quite like comic book characters that you can hand them off to another generation and it's just as exciting and fresh as it was when they were created in the 40s. Like you think about anything like music and all these things from that era. And all those things fail, fade away and become stale. Whereas like every time they, like right now, where you and I are excited because there's a new Superman movie in the works by a really talented creator. But that character was created in the 30s. You know, there's very little that you could take from the 30s and go, it's as fresh and hot right now as it was when it came out. That's an amazing legacy. And I get to be part of that. Like I got to be one of the people they handed the baton to on a couple of characters. And I've contributed something that's, you know, now in the zeitgeist, you know, and that, that for me is the pinnacle of, of why I do what I do or what I love about doing what I do. Yeah. And, um, you know, to that point too, uh, you know, I know that we talked about Transmet a little bit, but like, is it kind of like, you know, a, a mindfuck to you uh, that it has the staying power that it has had where like, I've, for whatever reason, I've met uh, a number of like women who do Spider Jerusalem cosplays. I know and, they like, don't dress it's, it's up as surprising the filthy assistants. Me. Yeah, they don't dress up as the filthy assistants. They dress up as Spider. I think that's what's really amazing to me is that Spider, that they relate to him in a way. Here's this bald, you know, uh, white male. And yet all these different kinds of people of different races and different genders relate to him. And I think it's because he's a badass truth teller. And you can, and everybody wants to feel like they can be a badass truth teller. So in that regard, put it on his mantle is like having that bravery. Cause he's the, he's the character, like spider Jerusalem is the guy I wanted to be. That's why I think what comes through in the artwork is that, you know, I was kind of a punk rock teenager, but I loved sex pistols and clash and, you know, stuff that was seven seconds and, and stuff that was edgy and and because a lot of it had there was a lot of like spit in your eye honesty in there and i so so spiders like you know i'd never be brave enough to be him but i could vicariously create what i thought it would be like to be him by you know reading warren's incredible scripts and then trying to bring him to life to the reader but it was also a venture away from doing superheroes and anything like that when i was a kid or you know just getting started like i during the 90s like marvel had gone bankrupt and every all these comic book stores were closing down and i didn't know where the future was and i actually was thinking about getting out of comics uh because i was still young and i thought well you know maybe i can do something else with my life because i really thought the industry was imploding for good and uh it was interesting because uh, it was because 
I had a chance to do, Warren called me and wanted to do Transmetropolitan, see if I was interested. And he didn't think I'd want to do it monthly. I was just going to do a few issues and when, when he offered it. But I said, no, I'd like to do this song going. And he's like, okay, when there were co-creators and there, that's how it was born. But I did it. I, at the same time, I was offered um, a Spider-Man book, finally. That was going to be my monthly and a Spider-Man team-up, which would have been, or Marvel team-up, but it would have been Spider and a different, Spider-Man and a different uh, Marvel hero every month, which would have been a lot of fun to draw, to be perfectly honest. I'd still like to do a book like that. But I thought, yeah, you know, I don't, I might as well. And a friend of mine advised me the same way. He goes, look, if you do Spider-Man right now, you'll be another guy that has drawn Spider-Man and your name, your name will always be below the character. But if you create something original and it hits, your name will be above the character. It will be your character that you've, you know, you've created something and contributed to the world. And I'm like, yeah, that's a good point. Like, and Warren and I, we were, when we were talking about what we were going to do in the book and when they saw what I was doing with the book, we didn't think we were going to last four issues, much less, you know, but with, and it barely, and it struggled the whole time it was being published. So it's really strange that 20 years later, it's more popular and, and still exists in these collections that, that do so well compared to what it was like when we launched it in the 90s. So just goes to show you, you, you can't really uh, predict the future when you're predicting the future. And uh, how big of a part of it was the uh, that sort of Hunter Thompson archetype for Spire Jerusalem like from the beginning? Well, visually for me, it was important just as mannerisms and things like that, because I actually was a big Hunter S. Thompson fan as well. But uh, as far as who Spider really is, like there was a number of uh, journalists that Warren was aware of and was reading that he kind of folded into the character. So it wasn't just Hunter S. Thompson. It was sort of like the Gonzo aspect was Hunter S. Thompson, but the uh, but the overall character had a little more, I don't know, depth and breadth to it because Warren was much more aware of what was happening in the world than I was. I was not as uh, politically smart as he was. And like, he was able to, re but then he was kind of reaching into the past a little bit with like uh, Nixon and, and in his own country, you know, he, he's from England. He was dealing with like Tony Blair's politics and things like that. So we were sort of taking the past and making it the future. But what's weird is how it's echoed. You know, like these things seem to keep resonating throughout time. Yeah. So I've, um, I actually have a Hunter Thompson story for you. Uh, oh. So I'm from uh, Kentucky originally from about 30 oh, miles cool. south of Louisville. And when I first uh, got into journalism in undergrad, it, a lot of it was because I was a big Hunter Thompson fan. And then the rest of it was because I wanted to cover music. But, you know, the music industry kind of went to shit uh, during the time that I was in college. And yeah. so like music magazines don't really do that well or pay that well anymore. No. Um, but uh, so I went off to grad school, came back, was freelancing for Louisville magazine, which I had interned at when I was an undergrad. So this was around 2012. Um, and there was this program in Louisville, uh, that was called the hometown heroes program, where basically all these famous people from Louisville get a giant banner on the side of all these buildings throughout the city, uh, with their face on it. So there's one for like Diane Sawyer, Muhammad Ali, uh, Johnny Unitas and so on. There wasn't one for Hunter Thompson. So, oh. uh, I had like this column every month, uh, in Louisville magazine. It was just like, I think, uh, 1200 words. And uh, I decided that I was going to find out why Hunter Thompson didn't have a banner. And basically what I got back from the organization that was behind it uh, was that because of Hunter Thompson's lifestyle and the fact that he had killed himself, 
they didn't think that he was someone that they should spotlight on this banner. And, uh, you know, I'd found, I'd got this directly from the guy who was in charge of the program. I was like, well, that's kind of bullshit. Cause like if Ernest Hemingway or like Jimi Hendrix were from Louisville, you would give them banners despite their lifestyle or the way that their lives ended. And he was like, no, we wouldn't. I was like, yeah, you would. (laughs) So, um, I got Ralph Steadman, uh, to give me a statement for it. And he also contributed an illustration. I got to share a byline with him. Very cool. (laughs) Yeah. Eventually they gave Hunter a banner, but it wasn't under uh, the same program. <laughs> well, I, good for you for sticking up for Hunter S. Thompson. I'm, my big claim to fame with him was that in the early days of the internet, when you still had to use a dial-up modem to get on, um, apparently he had a thing about Transmetropolitan on his website and he liked it because I know he didn't like a lot of the parodies that people did of him. He wasn't a big Doonesbury Duke fan, but apparently he really liked Transmetropolitan. So that was a little bit of a badge of honor for me. <laughs> and I, one of the other people who was uh, a big fan of the book was uh patrick stewart uh with support yeah, like that, that has there ever been a uh, talk of an option for transmet oh yeah yeah talk there's talk all the time options are like you know pizza slices they're easy to get but you know you know getting the whole pizza is not so easy but yeah i know i met patrick stewart um and uh he's very nice he wrote us an introduction for the book in one of the yeah, collections a, uh, volume five i think yeah yeah and so you know he's very nice he was uh i my meeting patrick stewart was a real honor but he apparently we were at a seattle convention together and i got word of mouth like i said oh i was wanting to meet him and so they got word to him he said oh he'd like to meet you too and apparently he and warren got out to dinner but i'm just the artist so i don't get to go out to dinner <laughs> with people so uh but he was sitting down to do a signing and they brought me up to him and they said and the guy, it's really funny, he is a lawyer, and the lawyer, uh, I shared a car with this guy in the past because we got driven to the airport together once, and I remember meeting him, he had no memory of me, um, but we had talked for like an hour, and he gave me his card and everything, but, uh, and I was reminding him, I said, we've met, and he's like, because yeah, I could just tell it wasn't registering, because he represents a lot of the Star Trek people, and, uh, but he just kept telling me, okay, look, uh, Patrick's got really bad arthritis, so don't take his hand, don't shake his hand, I'm like, no problem. I'm just here to say hi. And so they brought me over to the table and uh, there was a huge line of people waiting to talk to him, but they brought me over first. And then I was like, Hey, I just wanted to say, it's nice to meet you. I'm Derek Roberts. And he was Derek. And he reached out with both his hands and grabbed mine. So like he took my hand, I was like, like he took my hand, but he was, he couldn't have been sweeter. We, we chatted for a little bit. I, I wish that I had the uh, presence of mine to get a photograph and I didn't, but he was really great. He's just a, he's just as, as friendly and kind and, and uh, evasive as you think he would be, but he was, uh, you know, but there's something pretty amazing hearing your name out of that voice. <laughs> yeah. You know, hearing I, that uh, voice, hearing that voice say your name enthusiastically, that'll stay with me. I had a, a similar experience once when I met Carrie Fisher at a con where uh, oh. I had on a Han Solo costume. This was a few months before she passed away. And I had oh. on this Han Solo costume. It was at New York Comic Con. And uh, I you know, went through the line. I would get up to the table. Did and, you have New uh, Hope or Empire? Uh, it was New Hope. Empire is my favorite, but a New Hope was easier to, to get it's all the stuff together. Yeah. Uh, and so she looks at uh, up at me and she's like, I love your outfit. You look adorable. And I'm just oh. like, oh, Carrie Fisher just told me I was adorable. And yeah, just, then just she like she take, grabbed take a handful out. of glitter and rubbed it all over my face with her bare ah! hands. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I hear she was she I heard she was very sweet. 
Oh yeah, she uh she was incredibly kind. Uh I think she she signed my Blu-rays uh Love to Roger XOXO and then oh. rubbed the glitter on me. So there's still like a little bit of glitter in the the Blu-ray in set. the case. Yeah, and That's there's still cool. some on that Han Solo costume. So I'm like, I can never wear this costume again. Nope. Or, yeah. Get another costume. <laughs> Put that one in a bag. That's Carrie Fisher glitter right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So if uh, if Transmet was adapted today, uh, who do you think would be the perfect uh, spider? I, I don't. I don't like to play this game anymore. <laughs> uh, my my. It used to be fun. It's not. Everybody's got an opinion now. Actually, I would say what my original wish list remains was tim roth and i think tim roth would, is still because spider can be an older dude and work and tim roth looks great and still you know you can see him in the marvel stuff and he's still going strong so tim roth would probably be my first choice but you know it, it's too uh, much of a thing now if i start saying that like people Derek robertson said tim roth will be spider and that's <laughs> just a wish list i don't i don't really i can't really weigh in on it much yeah, so, I mean, this, uh, I think that might be just enough for people to run with that anyway. <laughs> I've said it before. I even did some, back in the day, I did mock-ups of him as, as Spider with uh, CGI'd some, uh, used Photoshop, put glasses and tattoos on him. And he looks great. He would have been awesome. There's an old movie where he plays a skinhead and he, you see him walking. He's got some tattoos and, you know, I was able to put a little Spider on him. And it looked, it, he, he, he's got a great walk for Spider. So that's one of the reasons. And he's short, and which is why I I, I want Spider to be, you know, uh, dangerous but small, kind of like Wolverine. You know? Yeah, I mean, I I can see that just uh, thinking of his overall like posture and gait from uh, She Hulk when he was like the yep. the uh, um, I don't want to say cultist. He was like the weird new agey version of Abomination. Yeah, <laughs> yeah totally. He's a, yeah. a, he's, a, he's, he's great. I, I'm, I've always been a fan. So, you know, like all the way back to Reservoir Dogs, you know, like he stood out to me then too. So, yeah, it's, it's I think it was Warren's choice back then too. So I don't know. I, that would probably just be my wish list, but I don't know how any of this is going to work out or if it will work out. And, you know, it would be great for me if it does. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I've had you a little bit over an hour now and I don't want to take up too much of your time. Uh, I appreciate it. I'm actually supposed to be drawing, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, we'll do this again sometime and, uh, we'll talk right, about Batman nice. Fortress and some other stuff, but, uh, yeah, thanks All so righty. much for taking the time. Hey, my pleasure. It was fun talking to you, Roger. Oh, Roger, Roger.